Today in the garage, we have the impressive Erin Dan. Erin practices at both the trial and appellate levels. She is a member of the Pro Bono Inmate Appeal Program, a coordinator for the Supreme Court Advocacy Institute, and a member of the Queen's Law Moot Advisory Council. Today we spoke about appeals and tips Erin has for other lawyers practicing appeal work. Whether you're riding your bike on Queen Street West, playing the bass, or prepping a fresh evidence application at the Court of Appeal, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to them. Welcome, Erin. Welcome to the garage. Thanks very much for having me, Paul. Thank you for coming. I wanted to engage in a conversation today about appeals and bail pending appeals. Tell me a little bit about your practice. Let's share that with the audience. Sure. So I have a mixed practice. I do both uh, trial work and appeal work, but my probably my, my main love is doing the appeal work. Um, and I represent people on appeals on everything from, I always say, mischief to murder. So it's quite a mixed practice. Uh, I argue appeals both before the Summary Conviction Appeal Court, so the Superior Court, and at the Court of Appeal. Um, and then from time to time, I also get to do fun trial work. Uh, so it's a nice mix. I have a bit of, of both the trial and uh, and appeal work, um, which can present some challenges in terms of scheduling and, and timing, but uh, also lets me see uh, the court process from both sides, from the trial and appellate side. Now, I know you didn't mention the Supreme Court of Canada there, and I don't know if you're being shy, but <laughs> you have argued at the Supreme Court of Canada. I have, yes. Um, and you've spent a lot of time there as well. <laughs> so I clerked at the Supreme Court of Canada for my articling, uh, so that's when I spent the most time there. Uh, and I have been very lucky to um, to act as junior counsel on a number of cases um, uh, at the Supreme Court of Canada and as an intervener for the CLA. Um, and I will next be going there on uh, the via rail terrorism case, the Jasser and Essegeyer case. So we'll see when that's uh, to be scheduled. But that's also an exciting part, uh, certainly an exciting part of the practice. Well, you're absolutely a first chair advocate at the Supreme Court of Canada. <laughs> so uh, what inspired you to uh, get into the area of criminal law and also dive into the area of appeals? So... I didn't know when I went to law school. I didn't know any lawyers before I went to law school. I didn't really even know exactly what lawyers did. Uh, when I got to law school, though, criminal law was, from the beginning, the topic, the area that I thought was most interesting. And uh, then when I clerked at the Supreme Court, I clerked for Justice Morris Fish, now retired. He was a former criminal defense lawyer before he became a judge. And, that, and working with him for that year really cemented my... Uh, interest in criminal law. I think it is the most um, interesting and exciting area in law. Um, we're always good at at uh, cocktail parties, I always say. We're the most interesting <laughs> lawyers at a cocktail party. But it's also, I think, legally speaking, if you're interested, as I was, in the in the law part of practicing law, criminal law offers an opportunity unlike almost any other uh, area of law to actually litigate charter issues and constitutional issues and to actually be in court and frequently making arguments that can help shape the um, can help shape the criminal law 
in our uh, in our country. So I thought it was it was always an area of interest, cemented during my clerkship, and then I worked. Uh, briefly at the start of my practice at the Crown Law Office Criminal, which is the appeals branch of the, the Crown Office, uh, before, joining, uh, before joining a criminal law firm on the, on the defense side. And since you've been uh, exposed to different uh, areas of the criminal law, from working for a judge or uh, working for the court and then working for the crown and then working on the defense side. How do you feel that that has helped your experience to get where you are today? I think it's beneficial to see the court process from all sides. I wasn't someone who in law school had a real sort of ideological bent, like, oh, I could only ever work on the crown side or I could only ever work on the defense side. Um, I think having practiced now for a number of years, my I, I certainly feel it more at home on the defense side, but having the opportunity to see the process from all different sides has been very helpful. I think uh, seeing how judges work really allows you to... Um, to work on shaping your submissions, whether those are oral submissions or written submissions and your advocacy before the court in a way that's most helpful to the judge. When you have an, a good understanding of what the judge's job is, uh, it's um, it helps you be more helpful. And I think anything you can do to be helpful to the judge is good advocacy. You want to make their jobs as easy as they can be to accept your argument. If they have to do extra work to get to your side, that's not great advocacy. I think working for the Crown also was um, also gave me a helpful perspective. Uh, I think if we, the most, in my view, uh, the best adversaries are crowns, as crowns are people who are reasonable and take reasonable positions. And when, and similarly, I think that applies on the defense side. If, uh, if you sort of go in all guns a blazing and, um, taking positions that are, um, sort of, way over the top, there's a lot of way for the crown to look like the most reasonable person in the room and to make it easier for the judge to accept their pitch. And I think when you have an insight into what the crown's job is and what they're doing, and you can use that to frame your argument in the way that's most attractive, it can be a really powerful tool. It's interesting that all the comments that you've made, and, and the one that still is uh, peaking in my brain is that, you know, it makes good conversation. Uh, being a criminal lawyer it makes a good conversation at a cocktail party. And I recall uh, a criminal lawyer once saying about their career that every day is a new day and truth is stranger than fiction. I think that's putting it, uh, putting it perfectly. Um, your passion uh, is obvious. And uh, tell us about uh, when you uh, get a new file in uh, and it's an appeal file, and I'll ask about your appeal practice area, you know, what engages, what, what, how do you, how do you unpack what you've received and what do you do? So the, the first thing to know sort of from a, a really logistical point of view is when you get an appeal file, um, you've got to look at has the, has the client uh, filed the proper paperwork? The first step on any appeal is the notice of appeal, which is what gets you in the door. Um, and 
that has to be filed within 30 days of the person being sentenced. So that's the sort of starting point. Whenever I get an appeal file in the door, where is this process at? Has this person already started the appeal process? Are they just coming to you at the very beginning? Um, And you need to look at Uh, just as you might if you were uh, running a trial, you get the information, you get the indictment, you see exactly what has this person been found guilty of, where did the trial take place, was it uh, by indictment or did it proceed summarily, so you know what court are you going to. It's the boring but really nitty-gritty stuff that has to get done right off the top. Um, And then there's also the practical side. Many, many appeals are legally aided. Um, Even people who can afford to pay private counsel for a trial may have exhausted their funds by the time the appeal comes. So I think the other sort of real logistical nitty gritty is to work out how are you going to get paid for this work. And the the process for legal aid in Ontario uh, for appeals is different than at a trial. Um, At a trial, there's financial sort of criteria. Those remain on the appeal side, but there's also a merit component on the uh, appeal side where a lawyer has to provide an opinion to legal aid in a letter saying and recommending or not recommending funding for the appeal. So the first thing I will do when I get um, get a new file is to gather enough information about what happened at trial that I can come up with an opinion about the the merits of the appeal. And that applies whether it's legally aided or it's going to be a private client because you also want to tell a private client, listen, is this worthwhile? Is this worth you spending your money on? And so that will often mean getting... Um, In a jury case, it means getting the charge to the jury, talking to the trial counsel and seeing what issues were at play at trial. Um, In a judge alone trial, it means getting the reasons for decision. Again, talking to trial counsel, getting a sense of what happened at trial, what the potential issues are. Um, And that's the first step is delving in and seeing, is there there something here to work with? So I want to draw back, if you don't mind, just because you've told us about when appeal comes to the door. Just because some of the audience may be thinking about getting into this area, how did you develop the practice? How, like, I know that uh, initially, um, when I was not successful on a trial and there was appeal, I, I was terrified. I, I, I started, you know, I think all young lawyers do this: is they think about themselves as opposed to the file. And then I realized it's actually a fantastic relationship between myself and the appeal lawyer. I am a source of information that they will call upon. Uh, but I've also learned over the years that if, if I see that there's a date, uh, time between uh, conviction and sentence, I'll want the client to engage a lawyer for an appeal as soon as possible, and maybe hand over the sentencing or follow the direction of the appeal lawyer on sentencing. So where do you get your work from and at which phase do uh, counsel ask you to get involved or clients ask you to get involved? Right. So developing an appeal practice, um, a lot like developing a trial practice, is really about doing appeals um, and getting your name out there. A lot of my cases come from referrals from uh, other lawyers, uh, typically trial lawyers. And as an appeal, a primarily appeal lawyer, that really is, those are the relationships you really need to work on is your relationships with people who don't generally do 
appeals, uh, but who do a lot of trial work. Um, I know one way that I, um, when I was younger and, and trying to, um, to get work was I would offer, um, myself as, um, someone who trial lawyers could call. They're in the middle of a trial. They've got a complicated legal issue. They've got a half an hour to figure out what they need to say to the judge. I would be someone who is more often as an appeal lawyer in my office, can do some quick research and get that trial lawyer an answer quickly. And I think being available to trial lawyers in that way is a good uh, sort of entry point into, um, into appellate work because that trial lawyer, when if the, uh, the trial doesn't go the way we hope it would, will have you in the back of their mind in terms of, of who they could refer the, the appeal on to. Um, and you also, in those cases, have a chance to help shape the record that you're ultimately going to be appealing from, which is which is always helpful. The other thing I would say for people who are interested in getting into appeals um, is to take summary conviction appeals on, even on legal aid. You don't make a lot of money. It's the certificates are, you know, the tariff is low on a summary conviction appeal, but it gets you into doing appeals. It gets you the experience um, usually summary conviction appeals have smaller records, they're shorter trials, uh, and you get the practice of doing that and you get to develop your skills and to get to, to develop a bit of a reputation as someone who does these appeals. So I think that's important. And, and this is advice I'd give to any young lawyer, your greatest, I think, asset as a young lawyer is that you have time. So when you get your first appeal file, you can take the time that perhaps a more senior lawyer wouldn't be able to take in talking to the client in talking to the trial lawyer and do your, your, you know, you're absolutely everyone I think in our profession does their top notch work. But as young counsel, one of the things you, you have on your side often is you can spend the time to really develop a relationship with the client and the, the trial lawyer. Um, many, many of my referrals for appeals come from other clients. Uh, and just like trial lawyers, a client who is in custody, who you're doing a, a good job for on an appeal is a tremendous source of, uh, of referral work. Um, so that's some tips in terms of how to, to uh, get into the appeal sort of practice. In terms of when in the, the appeal process do I get the trial lawyer involved, um, like you mentioned, Paul, I like to, if it's possible, to uh, hear from a trial lawyer at the conviction stage. So there's often a gap between the conviction and sentence. Um, connecting with the trial lawyer at the conviction point before sentence is imposed allows you to put some of the, uh, the sort of machinery in motion, particularly in terms of a bail pending appeal, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, the many people will want to apply for bail the same day that they're going to be sentenced. So they don't spend any time in custody or only have to spend a night in custody. And so where it's where possible, it's always nice to have uh, the appeal, be discussing the appeal a few weeks or even months in advance of the person being sentenced. It's one of the things that I try to share with younger lawyers that if you actually have an opportunity to split uh, the time between uh, the sad conviction, the wrong conviction, and the sentencing date. Uh, you do that, and you, you you talk to the client about an appeal, and you get the lawyer that they choose for the appeal in as quickly as possible, because it's so important. Nobody wants to spend a day in jail, 
And uh, I've heard a number of times of where uh, a sentencing will happen at nine in the morning, be finished by 10. Uh, appeal lawyers like yourself run over to the Court of Appeal and, and get the bail for the afternoon. That's right. So I, um, I think bail pending appeal, similar to bail pending a trial, will often be a deciding factor in, in whether or not someone... Uh, in the case of an appeal, pursues the appeal in the same way that sometimes getting bail is why someone will, you know, resist pleading guilty just to get it over with. If uh, someone who um, doesn't get bail pending appeal, particularly where the sentence is short, they may decide not to appeal at all. And so the the bail pending appeal is critical. It's also, you know, someone who has been on bail pending trial for a number of years, it's really something to be sentenced and to be facing, you know, a a lengthy sentence. So um, you're quite right. If we're involved in advance of the actual date of the imposition of sentence, I can get an application for bail filed at the Court of Appeal. Uh, It has to be on three clear days notice. So we get all of our materials in. And if they're sentenced, if uh, your client is sentenced in the morning, we can be arguing a bail at two o'clock in the afternoon and frequently the client doesn't even make it to the local jail. They'll be held at the, the courthouse and can be released right from there if everything goes smoothly. <laughs> so just some technical questions. Uh, what is required for bail pending appeal? What, what materials do you have to put together and what information do you need? So the bail pending appeal, typically there's a notice of application there. And then there are supporting um, affidavits or other supporting documents. So the key critical uh, pieces are an affidavit from the client uh, setting out their history, uh, the terms of their release on bail pending trial, uh, the plan for their release on bail pending appeal. Uh, if there's going to be a surety, uh, then we have an affidavit from the surety. So unlike most trial bails, bail pending appeals are typically done on a paper record. It's very uncommon, at least in Ontario, for sureties or accused to be cross-examined on their affidavits. So typically the affidavits are filed and we argue based just on those affidavits. And then also um, in the bail pending appeal uh, application, you want to have something that shows the court the potential merit of the appeal. So that means filing a a notice of appeal. And then uh, there's different ways in which lawyers... um, will highlight what they say is the the merit or potential merit of the appeal. Some uh, lawyers will do what's called a, uh, an affidavit of merit. So they actually will have perhaps another lawyer write up an affidavit and, and set out sort of the history of the trial proceedings and uh, what happened in, in, um, in those proceedings and what the potential grounds of appeal are. Uh, if it's a legally aided cases, you likely have already done an opinion letter to legal aid, which sets out the merit of the appeal. I'll often attach that as uh, part of the bail pending appeal application. Uh, sometimes in um, hotly contest, what I expect will be hotly contested bails, I'll write a brief sort of memorandum of argument, which just sets out uh, some of the facts of the trial and the the grounds that I'm seeking to advance. The test for bail pending appeal is whether the person will surrender themselves into custody as directed. Um, it sort of tracks similar to the the trial bail, uh, whether the person um, uh, would be at risk of committing another offense if if on bail, and then whether or not detention pending appeal 
uh, is necessary in the public interest. So those are the three um, areas that you need to sort of look at and have your bail materials um, address. And uh, in the public interest um, part of the the assessment, the court will look at w- how much merit uh is there to the appeal? Of course, you can't show in the we you won't have the full trial record, so the court isn't expecting you to show this is likely to succeed. the The hurdle you have to show is that it's not a frivolous appeal, and that the strength of the appeal is sufficient to sort of balance any uh, interests that the public might have in seeing the person detained uh, pending the appeal. You know, as a trial lawyer, I've always. Uh looked at 515 of the criminal code and said, okay, what does this mean for a bail? Which is great. It lays out the rules. But understanding how to build a factual record, one of the things that I learned and uh, from lawyers like yourself and others who you've practiced with, um, that uh, read the superior court rules as to uh, a bail review. Read the rules from the Court of Appeal about uh, a, a bail at the Court of Appeal or bail pending appeal because you they're very direct at what factually underpinnings you need uh, for a bail. And if you can then bring it back down and use it at a, in, a, in a first instance bail, it helps. Um, bail pending appeal is interesting. Uh, how, is it a quick argument? Uh, is, it, is it just decided on the paper record? Yeah, so it is typically just decided on the paper record. I would say... Uh, a, a number of times, particularly if the person has been on release pending trial and has done well on release pending trial, you will um, be able to convince the Crown uh, to consent to the bail pending appeal. In those cases, you file your bail application materials. As I say, it has to be th- at least three clear days in advance. You give the Crown a chance to look at those materials, to you know, do their checks on the proposed sureties. And often a bail pending appeal will be a process of negotiating with the appeal crown. And it's a different crown than did the trial, um, particularly at the, uh, if, if this is an appeal to the court of, an appe- uh, court of appeal from uh, an indictable matter, then those um, cases are handled by 720 Bay, the crown office there. And often the process of bail is, as I say, a negotiation about the terms. What are the terms of release that the uh, Crown can live with and you get the consent bail? Where you can't get the consent, then it's an argument, and it's an argument in front of a single judge of the Court of Appeal. It happens in motions court, which uh, at the moment is not happening at the actual Court of Appeal uh, during uh, uh, covid uh, those applications are happening, but they're happening remotely via Zoom or teleconference. Uh, but it is a, a single judge motion, and it is argued, as I say, almost 100% of the time on the paper record. So you're pointing to the affidavit, you're pointing to um, the reasons for judgment, you're making an argument based on the written materials. I would say typically, you know, um, you might make 15 minutes or half an hour of submissions. It's, you're not arguing the full appeal. You just need to highlight, you know, where is there enough merit here to get over that hurdle? And is the plan for release sufficient to protect the public? Um, There's a balance in bail pending appeals. What the judge has to decide is uh, balancing enforceability, the public interest in enforcing the decision of the the decision of the court below versus reviewability, 
the idea that people are entitled to an appeal and to have a meaningful appeal right sometimes means allowing the person to continue to be out of custody while that review process is going on. So those are the the countervailing interest, enforceability, reviewability that you're balancing. And we're, as defense counsel, always uh, chiming in on the side of, of reviewability and the Crown is talking about enforceability. So like often it happens, you get your client bail, pending appeal, now you're on to perfecting the record. Yes. Whatever that means. <laughs> what does that mean? So that means you've got to, uh, first things first, you've got to order the transcripts. And uh, that means going through the court reporters, getting all of the transcripts from, um, from the court below, Again, uh, you reference the criminal appeal rules and the superior court rules. They tell you exactly what transcripts you need and you don't need. Uh, so that's step number one. Once the transcripts are all received, then you have to uh, complete a factum, which is the written argument uh, setting out what you say are the mistakes that were made in the court below. Uh, and you also have to prepare what's called an appeal book. An appeal book is the... Uh, often a multi-volume sort of book that contains all of the original papers and exhibits from the court below. So the indictment or information, um, all of the exhibits, any orders made by the um, uh, orders made by the the judge below. And uh, while you put uh, the books together, one of the things that I found interesting when I've gone to watch some appeals is uh, you only you, you there is this presumption that the judges know the law and so you excerpt a paragraph or a page of the the most relevant case law that you want to refer to saves a lot of paper and i imagine it saves a lot of time too um and, and so i found that to be really good common sense and unique and uh, and uh, i guess as COVID has introduced us to bring, coming into the next century hopefully we'll be able to uh, deal with that because the judges of both the superior court and provincial court are, are very well uh, uh, knowledge in the area of law and they have a great base so um, let's talk about advocacy how is uh, how is it that you approach advocacy both from a written perspective and an oral perspective sure um, I, I think one um, the point you just made ties into this our judges particularly judges at the court of appeal are very well versed in the law, familiar with the law. So I think the biggest difference for me in terms of uh, trial advocacy, appellate advocacy, is that the Court of Appeal judges have uh, the benefit of getting your factum and the appeal book and the books of authority all in advance of the um, all in advance of the hearing. They're not hearing the argument for the first time when you go to make the pitch. So your written advocacy uh, needs to be, polished and focused they're going to have a lot of time and they're going to um to look at those materials and you have more time than you would at, in the middle of a trial to prepare those materials so they're expecting a high caliber of of polished sort of written materials and at the oral argument they've had a chance to review those materials so you don't need to go back to first principles they Generally speaking, at the Court of Appeal, the judges are ready and prepared. They know your argument, and they're there to, uh, one of my colleagues once put it, kick the tires. So they know what you, you want to say. They want to ask you some questions about it. Um, and so you should not, the sort of kiss of death we always say at the Court of Appeal is to simply read your factum. 
they can read the the factum. What you need to do is try and engage them on what you see as my thought is the crown sort of strongest arguments and saying why those aren't actually as strong as they first appear and to engage the judges on the issues where you think they likely um, they may be struggling with your position. Uh, and, and I welcome questions at the Court of Appeal. I love it. I think it really gives a sense of where the judges' minds are. Um, and so my advice is always to, to junior counsel to not be afraid of the questions, but to embrace them and see them as an opportunity for you to do your some of your best sort of advocacy work. Uh, and I suppose my sort of other thought on trial versus uh, appellate advocacy, particularly for uh, counsel who perhaps haven't done appeals before, is one thing you need to be uh, uh, sort of able to appreciate is that you lose a lot of appeals. <laughs> That's one of the big differences between trial and appellate practice is most appeals don't succeed. And that's okay. That's actually a good thing from the perspective of the administration of justice. These are error-correcting courts. It wouldn't be a great thing if every time you went to the court of appeal, they were correcting the decisions of the court below. There's lots of room for good advocacy. There's lots of room for correcting the errors where they happen and, uh, and really shaping the law as it goes forward. But it's important that you don't, as I think a, a young counsel or a counsel who's new to appeals, to value your work as an appellate lawyer just on the basis of your record. Um, if you are an appeal lawyer with a winning record, you're probably not doing enough appeals. Uh. <laughs> That's interesting. The, the, the other thing from trial perspective is when you realize what the court's function is and that judges have the right to be wrong and there's a great amount of deference, and you bring it back to a trial, it helps you to ensure that your record is placed in a certain way um, because that's this, the, the first instance is called the first instance for a reason, it, it is to ensure that you do the best you can at the first instance, and the way you do it is by complete preparation, understanding the law, and some good advocacy that comes from preparation. From an advocacy point of view, I know you've talked about putting uh, together the written record. Um, factums, more than 100 pages, less than 100 pages. <laughs> so the rule at the Court of Appeal is that the factum should be 30 pages. I always remind people that is a maximum. It's not the minimum. It's not mandatory. I think the shorter, the better. Generally speaking, if you can distill your, the, the more clearly you can distill your argument, uh, the better. Also, that those 30 pages shouldn't all be single-spaced quotes, right? You want white space on the page. As I said sort of early in our conversation, anything you can do to make the judge's job easier is good advocacy. And one thing you can do to make the judge's job easier is to have something that is easy to read. And that means lots of headings, um, uh, just getting to the point in terms of your writing uh, and where you can make it the argument in less than 30 pages, don't feel the need to fill empty space. Do you feel a tremendous amount of stress when they say you have 30 minutes to argue the appeal? I do. I think uh, <laughs> sometimes, yeah, the, the, the shorter the amount of time you have to argue, the longer the prep time that goes into it. Five minutes to make submissions on it as an intervener at the Supreme Court of Canada takes a long time. How do you um, distill what you want to say quickly into those five minutes? Uh, 
but it also is a good, I think it's, it's good discipline work uh, to have the set time limits and they are serious about the time limits. So that's one thing I, I do warn counsel about when they go to the court of appeal, they will remind you of your time limits and, and stick to them. The level of advocacy um, and the uh, banter between yourself and the judges, what's that like? Because I, I, I'd be terrified. <laughs> uh, I, I think it is. I, I mean, I certainly found it scary, uh, particularly when I, when I started. Now I appreciate the the banter. I actually w- welcome the questions from the bench and appeals that I find most stressful are when the, the bench is quiet and you feel like you're... Uh, doing a bit of a monologue. Um, I like when the the judges have questions because it lets you see what are their issues. If they're sitting silently, I may think I'm convincing them, but they have this problem that I'm not getting at. When they're asking questions, uh, you that's an insight into where their mind is at, and it helps direct your argument. And I try and uh, um, I try and remember that if they're pushing you really hard, that's a bit of a compliment. They think you can take it. I. Uh, very early in my career, I argued an appeal um, in front of uh, the Court of Appeal. Justice Doherty was sitting as the president of the panel, and it was a really tough appeal. He gave me a really rough ride, and uh, during the break, I actually called back to the office. I was working for now Justice uh, Joe DeLuca, then just Joe. And I told him this was going terribly. I was getting screamed at. I didn't know if I could do it. Uh, and he told me, you know, you just have to get back in there and finish the appeal. Um, and it's, you've got to, they're only asking you those questions because they think you can answer them. Uh, I was in near tears, but went back in, finished the appeal. I got back to the office. Joe, you know, had a bottle of wine on the table and said, it's fine. You'll get them another day. And I said, actually, I won. So- <laughs> So I, I think it. there is, a, you know, and that was a good reminder that sometimes they push you because these are tough cases and these are tough issues. And as you said, there's a lot of deference given to judges, to the trial judges, as there should be. And so if they're going to overturn a decision of the court below, they want to make sure they're doing that uh, and that it's the proper decision to make. And they will push you on that. And in the deference, uh, it took me many years to understand that the Court of Appeal is part of a system that wants to have a community have trust in its criminal justice system. And as part of that trust, there has to be trust in the first line judges. And they're going to have great discretion to to sometimes make a mistake, not to make a mistake all the time <laughs> and not to go off uh, uh, the radar. But uh, our judges are really good in Ontario and, and the appointments over the last 15, 20 years have proven that. Um, Got to ask you a question, if you don't mind, because I know you spend time uh, volunteering as part of the pro bono inmate appeal program. Fantastic program. Tell us about that. So that is it's a wonderful program um, that was initially put in place, a combination of lawyers and and judges, um, the late Justice Rosenberg, uh, Marie Hennan um, and. Allison at the uh, at the Crown Law Office Criminal, and it's a program that for uh, individuals who are unable to get legal aid, who want to uh, appeal convictions or sentence, and are self-represented, are acting for themselves on appeal. There is a roster of appellate counsel, experienced appellate counsel, who volunteer. And uh, each month in Toronto and every other month in Kingston, the Court of Appeal will hold sittings 
where they hear the appeals from these self-represented inmate uh, matters. And uh, two duty counsel each uh, at each sitting will uh, volunteer their time. We take a look at the materials. The materials are produced by the Crown's office um, in sort of an abbreviated, you don't get the full record, but you get the highlights. Uh, we take a look at those materials and we make the best argument we can for, uh, for the individuals. Uh, and it's a really, as a, appeal lawyers, it's some of the most um, sort of intimate contact we have with the clients because they're there, they're making the pitch and you often are seeing uh, in real time the impact of your work. Um, you know, walking a, a client at the end of a trial when they're acquitted isn't an experience that appeal lawyers get very often. Our clients aren't in the room when we make most of our arguments. Um, and we don't typically get results from the bench. So the inmate program is, uh, it's a great experience for the council. And I think it uh, is really helpful for uh, appellants who would otherwise otherwise be on their, uh, their own in the system. Um, I know that we're coming to the end of our time limit today at the Court of Appeal or our discussion about the Court of Appeal. Uh, and uh, and uh, I know that, uh, that this uh, discussion, this podcast is a success, so we don't need to hear from the Crown, but <laughs> this is the first time we're going to win when they tell you you don't need to hear from the Crown. Is there anything that you'd like to share with us from your experience in arguing appeals that you can sort of uh, send a message of encouragement out to young lawyers who, or, or lawyers that are thinking of, uh, of arguing some appeals or full-time, that it's a great area to be involved in. Yeah, I, I, love the, I love doing appeals. I think it is an opportunity to really think about, um, think about legal issues and uh, delve into legal problems in a way you don't always get to do when you're in the midst of uh, the back and forth of a trial. It's also a way you can have a real impact on uh, your clients' lives. I um, have been able to develop a kind of odd niche in, in doing appeals where I often uh, act for people who have been found not criminally responsible or NCR of relatively minor offenses. And they've been under the jurisdiction of the review board for many, many years. And I help them appeal the NCR verdict and seek a guilty verdict. So it's a, it's an unusual uh, thing for a criminal lawyer, but I succeed when they get convicted and the NCR verdict is overturned. And I've had a number of those cases where the clients will, after years or even decades uh, detained in a forensic hospital, will walk out of the hospital as free people. And that is a remarkable sort of feeling um, to assist people who feel um, like hope is lost, that they've had their first shot and they, they um you know, they struck out on the first attempt and to be able to tell people there is another level and uh, you will get a fair hearing. And even if it doesn't go your way, I think there is um, there's really something to be said to have that chance to have their case heard at an appellate level, to have that reviewed uh, and whatever way it goes to have that sense that um, that the justice system is fair and will hear the person out. And that's uh that's a fun way to practice and to have a, to be a part of. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's wonderful. We've heard from the remarkable Aaron Dan. Tell us where people can find you. 
Well, thanks very much, Paul. So I uh, practice with Dean Embry at Embry Dan Law. You can find us, our website is edlaw.ca um, and would be happy to, uh, to hear from anyone. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.